Good afternoon. Uh, as Melissa mentioned, my name is Matt Podzis, and I do direct a ministry in Chicago called Poema. Uh, we are committed to serving and supporting God's work on the campuses of the city of Chicago through fostering collaboration, co-creation of, uh, of initiatives, co-learning opportunities, so as to empower students to live just and fruitful lives. We are a fledgling organization, so it's a real privilege to be partnering with Melissa on this. And, uh, and it's also just a privilege to have uh, Michael Emerson joining us today uh, for our first conversation. Michael is the uh, head of the sociology department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He is the author of the book, Divided by Faith, which many people know him by. He's also written United by Faith, Transcending Racial Barriers, and a number of other books. Um, he's considered one of the foremost scholars in the area of race and religion in America. Uh, but he's also a vigorously engaged follower of Jesus within this work. And, and as I understand, he operates uh, through what I, what I see as a clear and urgent um, calling from Jesus in this. Um, so that's a personal and professional convergence in Michael's life. So uh, let me just welcome Michael into the conversation. Uh, if you want to say hello. I do. And I want to say I want to be wherever John Dennis is. That's quite the background. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <clears throat> uh, welcome, Michael. Uh, so I met Michael during his last couple of years as provost of North Park University. He has since transitioned to University of Illinois, Chicago. And uh, would you want to give us just a brief recap of your 2020 to this point, uh, Dr. Emerson? Sure. So on January 1 of 2020, I began my position at the University of Illinois, Chicago. I had been provost for about the last five years at North Park University on the north side. And before that, a professor at Rice University down in Houston. Uh, in March, as we know, uh, most people got shuttered home. We shut down. Um, I was home for about a week, and somehow I contracted uh, COVID, and uh, didn't go very well. I uh, yeah spent uh, 17 days in isolation, interrupted by having to go to the hospital because the uh, infection had spread to my spread to my lungs. I couldn't breathe correctly, uh, but fortunately made it through. It took about another six weeks before I could be a human again. Um, yeah, and so even this uh, semester, about 98% of our classes on a campus of 33,000 students are just being done like we're doing via Zoom or online in other forms. Yeah, I've thought about what an unusual year 2020 is turning out to be for all of us, but there have been moments when I've thought for you, there have been so many things converging, including this conversation surrounding um, race and, and the Christian faith. And I, I don't know if you, we're just going to jump in if, if that works. Uh, I don't know if I'd mentioned this to you, uh, Dr. Emerson, but there was an NPR segment this summer uh, that was talking about the legacy of the multi-ethnic church in America. You were actually interviewed in that uh, segment. And it, I think actually was part of what stimulated the desire to have this conversation in, in general, um, I, I smiled at one point because you were uh, referred to a few times as the godfather of the movement. And uh, I could only think of Marlon Brando or, you know, James Gandolfini, which is not necessarily your type. Uh, but what I think they're referring to is uh, just that, you know, th this has been something you felt called to for, for many years, for the better part of 25 years, if not before that, um, both professionally as a scholar, but also in your personal life as a follower of Jesus. And so I wondered if you could just even share a bit about that call uh, from the sort of to be engaged with this multi-ethnic uh, church movement, the reconciliation movement, and uh, what that call has meant and what it has looked like for you. Yeah, so 25 years ago, as a young professor teaching in central Minnesota uh, at a university called St. John's, and um, just living my life, I uh, didn't really understand race at all. I was in uh, a metropolitan area that it was 99% white, St. Cloud, Minnesota. <clears throat> uh, 
I got invited through our church, one of our church leaders, to go to something I'd never heard of before called Promise Keepers. And we made a drive out to Colorado for this big stadium event. I was interested because, you know, the, the lead ahead of it was this famous football coach, uh, McCartney, who was coach uh, uh, of the Colorado Buffaloes. So, but there I had an Acts 2 moment, a transformation that changed my life, but also changed our family's life. Uh, what happened is, just like I read in Acts 2, it felt like a, a holy fire came over me, a spirit that I wasn't even walking on the ground. God was just carrying me, and it was race in this country grieves me, and you will be involved. Didn't know what that meant. That's just what it was. Um, I bought every book I could uh, that they had available on race and religion. I stayed up for 72 hours reading them all. When I finished, I went to sleep. I had something like a vision. I woke up, told my wife, who was five months pregnant at the time, you might want to sit down for this. Because uh, the vision was very clear. It was this, that starting right now, until I tell you otherwise, you and your family will live as the racial minority. Which is a funny thing, right? When we're in a metro area that's 99% white, impossible. So I also knew that it was going to mean we move. And, uh, and sure enough, it did. It, uh, a new job came available. It meant moving to Minneapolis, going through all kinds of turmoil, because instead of moving where we normally would, which would be a nice white-dominated suburb, we moved to an African-American neighborhood in Minneapolis. And life stunningly changed for us, ways we had never understood. And now that's continued in Houston and in Chicago. So that transformation is part of how God works in sense of, <laughs> it's why I write what I write. And it's also you know, how we live, why we live as we live. Did, did you have a sense uh, of what God was asking you, what the role God was asking you to play as, as he sort of made that calling clear? No, it was step by step. So step one was, uh, I'm going to make a job available for you. You look for it. And uh, it was, uh, sure enough, he did. It was so clear because the things they asked you for you to be able to teach was exactly what I taught. Then the next step was, where are we going to live? And that was very tumultuous. If you want to have a little fun, and uh, my apologies if anybody here is a realtor, Tell a realtor you want to live as a racial minority. So only show me neighborhoods like that. They get so nervous and so flustered. And it's interesting because we actually have a law that says you can't take race into account. And the effect is that we take race into account unless you actually want to diversify. At that point, they will not do it. So they kept showing us white neighborhoods ostensibly by not taking race into account. And so we fired our first three realtors and just had to find it on our own. In fact, they would often say that to us. I can't take race into account to find you a neighborhood, but if you want to find the neighborhood, I could show you houses in them. At that point, I said, well, we'll just do it ourselves. Next step, which was maybe the hardest, was uh, where to send our children to school. And uh, they went to a school, and, and for the rest, all our the four children, all their entire life, you know, they would be maybe two, 3% white. Uh, and so that's how they grew up. And of course, church. So step by step by step. And then research projects started coming that allowed us to, allowed me to write in ways I couldn't have before. That is, uh, it says here, um, that is a powerful testimony. And it's true, that's actually more than I had ever heard. And um, I hope to hear even more from your sort of own personal history in this. Um, I, I think of you as, you know, you're a sociologist, uh, but you have sort of, in a de facto way, you're also sort of a historian of, of what's been happening um, as, as Christians have moved into this over the past uh, 25, 30 years. You, you've mentioned um, Promise Keepers at, at times as sort of being a high watermark in terms of national attention. I've heard you say before that that actually came on the heels of really people in the Black community and then sort of um, 
less white leadership spaces sort of beginning these conversations even before that. Um, but I, I just wonder, as you have been connected with this movement for, for as long as you have, what are some of the moves that you've seen within the movement um, that you can kind of help us understand what's, what's happened over the past, you know, 25 years? Yeah, so, and let me answer that by doing 50 years, and uh, not to scare people, but <laughs> we need that original context to understand the irony of where we are today. So, you know, we have the civil rights movement in the 60s, and in terms of evangelical Christianity, white Christianity, uh, it's interesting, you know, we went through all the Christianity Today magazines uh, at that time, and there's, even though there's this tumultuous racial upheaval happening in the U.S., sort of like what's happening now, uh, Christianity Today isn't covering it. They have uh, usually about one article per year devoting less than a page. So it's almost like it doesn't exist. When Martin Luther King is assassinated, then some of the black evangelicals start taking up a mantle and developing a theology of reconciliation. So some of you have heard of John Perkins and there's Tom Skinner and uh, others. And it's all of these initial reconciliation advocates and leaders were African-American, but willing to work with white evangelicals. So that was their goal is to try to help white evangelicals understand that race and racial reconciliation are not things to be avoided, but they are fundamental to the gospel. In fact, one of the early leaders, Samuel Hines, said that reconciliation is God's one item agenda. That is what God is about. Um, just real quick, three components to it. And of course they have to rhyme, admit, submit, commit. So admit that there is a racial problem is what they would advocate and that that is sin. And then submit to God leading on it and then commit. And what are they committing to? They're committing, asking people to commit to relationships across race and fundamentally to commit to overcoming injustice. So the idea is as you develop relationships, as you surrender to God, then arm in arm, people of all different backgrounds, Christians will work for justice for their fellow brothers and sisters. So that's all being developed in the 70s into the 80s, um, but it's mostly and almost entirely African-American leaders. As we get into the late 80s and, and 90s, there starts to be a, an, almost an explosion of that movement and it diversifies. So you will get uh, white leaders, Hispanic leaders, Asian leaders, all advocating reconciliation, you get books written, conferences starting being organized, and you get uh, promise keepers being maybe the most massive form of that. They made that one of their central promises. Uh, one of the years they made that their entire focus of their massive stadium events. As it became popularized in the 90s, and it, it became, I'll say, I don't know if it's a word, but I'll call it whiteized. So what happens is it gets individualized as the way that white folks typically demand things to be. Uh, and that is, look, racial relationships, yes. Systematic injustice, not part of our understanding of what racial reconciliation is. So as you read the writings that come out at that time then, more and more that part, that huge part, which was actually fundamental for the African-Americans developing it, that you have to work for justice, that disappears completely. And it becomes overwhelmingly how to develop relationships, how to maintain relationships. Because the issue is, well, there's individual sin and the problem is we don't get along. So if we can get along, then we can move on. So that's where we are, yeah, heading into 2000 so on. Do you want me to keep going or stop there? Well, I mean, I, I, I think there's, there's certainly another uh, couple decades that, that is, uh, true, you know, factors into that. I, I was thinking of the, the NPR piece that I uh, referenced at the very beginning. It seemed like you struck a, a fairly 
somber tone um, in, in that. And, and in fact, I, I know you've been updating a lot of the work that you did uh, from Divided by Faith. You're, you're preparing to release a, a book that, that brings in sort of a new follow-up on that research. Um, and I, and I um, guess my question is just, well, all right, you said that you feel like this has been sort of a, a series of, there's been some defeats that we've suffered uh, in this movement. And I wondered if you'd want to say more about that. It sounds like as you're talking about the, the challenges of, of how we see the way the world works have created some pretty big obstacles. But, but when you say that we, there have been some defeats that have been su suffered uh, in this movement, um, yeah, what would you say about that? How would you, how would you sort of elaborate on that? Yeah, so one of the things that happens then um, coming into 2000 and after is reconciliation movement morphs into an expression, which is the multi-racial, multi-ethnic church movement. So we've been tracking that since 1998 and, and multi-ethnic churches where no one racial group is 80% or more of the people have quadrupled in this time. So it's been a very successful movement. It's been a very concerted effort. There are organizations that exist to do nothing but help churches diversify. The same process though that I described happens as churches diversify. The idea was you diversify to help create the institution that allows for those relationships, that allows the organization and the people with the relationships to work for justice, to work for overcoming inequality. But again, the movement becomes dominated by uh, white pastors in particular. There are about 75% of pastors of these churches are white. Uh, and they drop that part once again. And it becomes about diversity for diversity's sake. Hey, if we have 20% people who aren't white, we have succeeded and we don't need to talk about it. In fact, it's one of the things we find in so many of these churches, they refuse to talk about it because they don't want to be, uh, they call it divisive. And so they just try to avoid the issues surrounding diversity. Only talk is, isn't it great? We're diverse. Let's celebrate that. So if you track, and I'll use Brenda Salt McNeil as an example, because I noticed that you all can get a hold of her new book. Uh, she's one of the I call it second wave reconciliation leaders and maybe the most uh, well-known and effective among all of them. And she's still there, but you'll notice in her book says now nothing about reconciliation. And this is part of the irony here that I was saying why we had to go back 50 years. <laughs> so in talking with her, she said, I thought if I could teach my white brethren what the Bible actually says on these issues and show them with the word of God that they being a people of the book would of course say, we must do this. And uh, she said over all these years, she concluded that that isn't working at all. In fact, I've spent 30 years for nothing. And I think uh, the last election for her was kind of a breaking point. So, even though she writes multiple books on reconciliation now, and this is what we're seeing, even the reconciliation people are saying, we're not going to use that word. We're going to use the word justice because white folks keep taking reconciliation and taking out the word justice. Uh, if history proves itself, I think uh, either justice will get slapped down as being too politically correct or too Marxist or something. Um, so I don't think I don't think changing the term is going to work per se. That that reminds me of uh, you wrote a blog post in Christianity Today in in I think Ed Stetzer's blog a few weeks or maybe it was a couple months ago, where you were talking sort of it seemed like you were talking two directions, but but in the end not not in a contradictory way, but you were talking to two different audiences, but you were definitely. Uh, lamenting a version of a pursuit of justice that abandons Jesus, but then I think you said in that that you should you should um, kind of go with Jesus in in his pursuit of justice, and that you should do that in 
community. And so what you just said, it makes me wonder how, how would you say is the, is the thing that we should be focusing on in reconciliation and multi-ethnic uh, church contexts or ministry contexts? Is reconciliation the thing that serves justice or, or does justice serve reconciliation? Okay, so there's great debate on that. So uh, we were mentioning just before everybody jumped on, you know, I go to church where, I don't know if you want to call it our tagline, but our guiding principle is we are reconciled to be reconcilers. So we would see that as the fundamental call of God. But that reconciliation isn't reconciliation without justice. Justice is uh, near and dear to God's heart. He gets angry quite a bit when people don't do justice. Um, and then both of those are for the purpose ultimately of unity, which is the witness that Christ prayed for. So I guess that's what would concern me as we move away from reconciliation to justice. It quickly becomes social justice apart from Jesus. So that piece he's referencing, I think it's called uh, Goodbye Christ, I've Got Justice Duty. That young Christians... They're big time into justice, but they're not seeing the church be big time into justice, or they're being swayed in seeing justice as defined by secularists, and they're just leaving the church because they care more about that concept than anything else. I, I know my pastor is also on this because I've seen him in the chat, and he has shared with me uh, about the how when you come around this, you really it's an unavoidable obligation to deal with the question of justice and how it is expressed in your church. Why would you say then that justice or reconciliation minus justice uh, and just that value, which of course is a biblical uh, value, a biblical character of God, why can't we get to reconciliation if we, if we can't really integrate justice in our churches and ministries in a robust way. So, so let me help you out. Let me help me understand the question again. So why can't we get to reconciliation? Yes. Sure. I've heard you, I heard you say basically reconciliation ought to be, it's the thing that Jesus died to accomplish. Um, and that there is a pursuit of justice that can kind of leave uh, our pursuit of Jesus behind. But, but also justice cannot be left behind either if we're right. going to pursue a reconciled, multi-ethnic, flourishing multi-ethnic community um, as believers. And I just wonder like, how you would um, express what happens when we try to, to not let justice play the role it's supposed to play in that. Or maybe there's an example. I wonder if there's an example uh, that you can think of in your own history where you've seen that that sort of uh, refusal to allow justice to play a, a significant role be become sort of a deal breaker or an obstacle to reconciliation? I mean, all the time, yeah. Here's the thing that's common across so much. I mean, in fact, I write about it 20 years ago. I was just rereading like, wow, things haven't changed much. Uh, Pastors that I've been talking to now, white pastors, you know, we're in a quite a tumultuous season on terms of race right now. They're saying, I need to talk about it. I know I need to talk about it. And when I talk about it, of course, I get pushback. I get the emails. Uh, I was just talking with a pastor in Houston, a megachurch pastor. He decided I am going to talk about this issue. He said, I have 500 less people in my church, all of whom went down the road to a church that won't talk about it because they are not interested in talking about issues of justice and so on. They want, and this is the constant refrain, right? Stick to the gospel, preach the word. And they keep trying to say, I am preaching the word. So this is where I'm going to get controversial already. Um, let me just jump into this and I'm happy to take questions too. As I've studied across our whole history, there's such commonalities. It's always this resistance um, from white Christians who, who are Bible followers, but refuse to follow major aspects of the Bible and find ways to explain them away. And I'll give you an example in our current research, and then I'm going to 
share how I'm making sense of it. So we did a series of, of, of questions. We did an online survey, randomly sampled uh, over 3,000 Americans, half practicing Christian, half not. So we asked uh, one question. To, you had to answer it a certain way to get the other questions. And that was, do you believe the Bible should be used to determine right and wrong? So if people said yes, the Bible should be used to determine right and wrong. We then gave them four questions. Three of them had to do with what the Bible had to say about other groups, foreigners, immigrants, uh, ethnic minorities. And then one of them was what we call a control question. And it had to do with um, swearing, using unwholesome words. So what we would do is that they would see on the screen the Bible verse. It says, the Bible says, and then we'd quote the verse with the actual in parentheses, you know, this is James 1, verse 2. And then we would restate what the Bible verse says. So, for example, the Bible says, do not use unwholesome words. Therefore, it is wrong to use unwholesome words. And we ask, do you agree or disagree? In that case, the majority of practicing Christians, no matter their racial background, they agree. That's what the Bible says. But on the other three questions, one about uh, Acts 6, where you have ethnic conflict and how to deal with it, one about how to treat uh, immigrants and foreigners, another on praying for people outside your own group. Um, the majority of Christians of color agree that that's what the Bible says on those. But for white Christians, when it, had, it was a question about other groups, always less than a third said, yes, that's what the Bible says. So two-thirds said, no, I don't agree, that's what the Bible says. So we did follow-ups, we went and interviewed people. And we asked them, um, if you don't agree, why is that? And so the most common answers were, um, well, you'd have to know the context, fair enough. Um, so we did those same focus groups with African-Americans, Hispanics, and so on. And they often would say the same thing. You have to know the con context. But we noticed something different in how these focus groups behaved. Focus groups, right, by is like, you know, you get 10 people in a circle and you're talking to them. When it was African-American group or Hispanic group, when they said contact, you have to know the context, they'd actually pull out their Bible or their iPhones and pull up the Bible on there and look at the context. We noticed that when uh, white groups said that, they never once actually pulled out the Bible to look at the context. It was uh, just simply a defense mechanism, a way to not have to agree with it. Another was um, when it talks about the immigrant or foreigners, they would, uh, whites would make the distinction. Well, that's only if they're legal. And so the Bible is not referencing that. And then another is that was for a different time that doesn't apply to today. Okay, so that's one group in this country that interprets the Bible that way. I mean, that, so that's, if all Christian groups, no matter the racial background, saw it the same way, that's one thing. But it's only one group that doesn't agree with this. If I look at the constant history, what happens is you get, you get people writing about this with, with metaphors. Um, they'll say it's like racism is in the DNA of the white church or uh, it's a parasite that's found its host in the white church or whatever. It goes on and on. And it's constant questioning. How can white Christians, Christians who are white, keep doing this stuff? How can after 244 years of this country, the most overwhelming response we get is, I didn't know. How can they not know? How can they not know? When brothers and sisters uh, of different colors have been saying for all this time, we're hurting here. So here's my controversial thing. What I'm actually arguing, and I just finished this chapter in the book, and I can't go into all the theory to show you, so it'll sound absolutely ridiculous, but is that white Christianity isn't Christianity and hasn't been. What was brought to us at the beginning of this country wasn't Christianity. It's actually the religion of white whiteness. It's the worship of the group and the power that is felt 
by basically being the supreme group in the world. And so it uses Christian symbols, yes, a white Jesus. It, it intermixes in this religion, it intermixes it with a flag. Um, yeah, stuff like that. So it's kind of a, what you might think of as Christian nationalism, but it's not Christian. It's the religion of whiteness or a white religion. It's something different than Christianity. And when you think of it that way, it then makes sense. Why? Whites can't seem to get justice and reconciliation and why it keeps being rejected and why we keep getting what scholars now call militant ignorance, that we just simply continue to say we don't understand, we don't know, teach me. Um, it's because you're violating the religion when you try to do these things like equality between peoples. You can have equality between individuals, but you can't have equality between groups because that would violate the religion. So controversial, yes. But it's funny though, when I share this with African-Americans, they go, yeah, duh. Mm -hmm. I want us to be able to move into a time of Q&A and that, um, that is a very, uh, that's a strong conclusion and maybe you'll share, be, have a chance to share about that kind of some more where that comes from. Um, before we move into the Q&A, I wonder if you, in, in an uncomplicated way, then what would you, how would you answer the, the question that we're gathering around today? What is the state of reconciliation in America? Um, and, and if you want to throw in some um, of the, where are you finding hope uh, and direction, that I would love for us to be able to hear that as well. But uh, how would you answer the, the question? What is the state of reconciliation in America? Yeah, I think so. We're, we're, we're at a time of reckoning. And I think God is calling us to abandon this false idol religion that we've been following and to convert to Christianity. We do have plenty of white folks who are Christian and already have made that conversion. The rest of us need to make that conversion. And then we can actually start talking about reconciliation, not even talking about it. I mean, we will then know that is our call. That is what we are put on earth to do. And so right now we are in a really tough time in terms of reconciliation because we have Christian groups fighting against what I'm now saying are not Christian groups, but saying they are Christian groups. And that's causing such angst that uh, people of color in large part are abandoning this idea of reconciliation and saying, I can't, I'm not gonna work with white people anymore. The only way you get change historically is that the oppressed groups find a way to force the oppressor groups to change. What I want to see and what my hope is, and I think this is what God's call is, is that <laughs> the true power of the gospel will be witnessed when the two groups do it together, when it isn't us against them, when it isn't one trying to overthrow another, because that never ends. I mean, Martin Luther King knew that, right? You can't, you can't win a battle by defeating an enemy because the enemy simply comes back and tries to defeat you. It never ends. It is the Hatfields and McCoys. So the only way we get true reconciliation is if and when we do it together and it's time to do it together. That's, thank you. What a great segue. I, I wonder, um, I, I think Melissa, there are some questions coming through and wonder if you wanna um, put one out there for Dr. Emerson. Yes, uh, there are some great questions coming in and uh, we'll try to field some of these as best as we can. Um, there is one from uh, Michael Sugihara, if you're able to unmute yourself. Uh, if not, I can, uh, I can ask for you. Um, I know this man. Michael, if you're, <laughs> <laughs> if you're not there, Michael, that's okay. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and ask your question. Uh, I, I think a helpful question, he, he was wondering, um, what have you seen as helpful for white Christians to experience, to bridge from experience God's justice reconciliation as sort of that only individual or relational aspect 
to experiencing God's justice and reconciliation that includes that systems and policies and institutions that we are talking about. So, so are, are there some things that are helpful in trying to bridge that gap as those who have yeah, been maybe immersed maybe in a different uh, mindset? Yeah, and so uh, I won't answer, you know, know all the cases, but the most powerful cases I know all have the same common denominator. And that's what I described at the beginning that God did with our own family. It is uh, completely changing and moving you out of the, a white world. So I often will say to people, think about all the aspects of your life, where you live, where you work, where you worship. Change at least one of them that you are a racial minority. Only when you have that kind of experience can you truly grasp what's going on. Um, that's, it's really difficult to read a book even. If you read a book within the context where you're seeing the inequalities, that book can have a powerful impact. If you read it apart from that, it's just like, well, it doesn't, doesn't quite hit home or doesn't make a whole lot of sense or this person's too liberal or whatever. Yeah. So that, that's a common, that's an important thing, a common thing that I see. I don't know, Melissa, if there's an, another question that you feel like follows up on that. Sorry, I'm asking. He has a hard job a trying to go here. through that. <laughs> well, <laughs> one, question, one question I saw, this was, um, from Sarah Woody, actually, someone I know, uh, was the the question of how do you know about when that conversion? You said it, this is a matter of of conversion, and I'm, maybe it's not that all people make the exact decision that you make or that you and your family made, but I I wonder when you think about that as a conversion issue from one um, false Christianity into the Christianity of of the Bible, um, how do you know? when that's happened, what are some, what are some hallmarks of that? Some markers are like when you are reading the Bible and you, those words of justice, reconciliation, unity, just jump out at you as these are truly the heart of God uh, because they are there so clearly, but yeah. So that's one hallmark. Another is when you find yourself truly grieved by brothers and sisters hurting by inequalities and by injustice, when that doesn't have to enrage you, but it, it deeply wounds you, it hurts. That's the heart of God. That's what God teaches us, that's what hurts God. So if that hurts us, instead of no longer feeling the need to defend or deflect or minimize those issues. You use the word, um, you know, militant uh, ignorance or something like that. It sounds like there is a posture of of, of openness that that comes along with that that um, that replaces that that stubbornness and that defensiveness. Um, yeah. yeah, I always say, you know, if you hear people of color, especially if they're Christian, saying something, what if you could posture that? what they're saying is true, as opposed to trying to find a way to, to begin to minimize it or defend it or to say, maybe you're not seeing it right, but just accept it as truth and have a dialogue about that. That often will lead you to the place of, we've got to work together to do something about this. We can rarely get there when we're busy trying to minimize. Let me just give a quick example while you're thinking questions. So there's, uh, She's a professor at Texas A&M, now teaching up in New York. She has, uh, teaches race and ethnic classes. And so for several years, she's been giving the same assignment. And the assignment is after they spend a whole semester studying about racial inequality, historically and contemporary, and how that's happened and the laws that have been put into place to create the inequality and maintain it in housing and uh, in every other aspect, she then asks the students to see if their families even either benefited from those laws and policies or been hurt by them. And so they're supposed to go, first of all, to interview their parents with a set of questions she provides. And then if their grandparents are living, to talk to their grandparents. What happened over the course of all these students, hundreds of students, is that 
uh, her white students had seven times the wealth from those laws as students of color, their families did. They were seven times as likely to benefit from these laws and so on. So they found that, you know, it's very clear. These laws really did impact my family. So they're supposed to write about that and then talk about what they might do. And what she found for the white students who they'll even say, you know, this is just horrible. This is, I can't believe my family has benefited in this way. Their answer is, one is called the, uh, the myth of white goodness or white purity. So they advocate for that. They say, if my ancestors would have known that they were benefiting unequally from these laws, they wouldn't have taken advantage of them. And so then in the end, what they're saying is, as they say, you know, that it's sad, but if we would have known, we wouldn't have done that. But they give no answer to how to solve it today. Another, which is very common was, this is very sad that this has happened. I feel very blessed that our family is able to have these resources and a story. Again, it's, it's not dealing with the issue. It's, uh, it's what I call by minimizing or defending or deflecting. Even our young students are doing that. So, Matt, I'm not sure if you saw. Oh, what? Oh, just um, there's a, a, a question I think that, um, that could be very helpful um, from uh, Rand Tucker. He, seems, he says that it seems that many leaders of color who have been champions in this area of reconciliation uh, have become disillusioned with the overall movement toward reconciliation. You, you mentioned uh, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. Uh, could you say more about this disillusionment, what you think will help re reconcile leadership towards reconciliation? Yeah, what, what do you see in that area and, and, and how do we move towards that in a way that's... So you don't have to agree with this and I'm not saying whether I agree or not, I'm saying this is what, when we did interviews with uh, leaders of, Christian leaders of color, what came up over and over and over again. So there had been this growing frustration, like why aren't white Christians seeing this? Why, why do they keep uh, individualizing it? Why won't they work for justice with us? But what they said for them was the breaking point, the point at which they thought, oh, I see it clearly now that they're, we don't matter. And that, that was the election of 2016. So for whatever reason, the I thought there was, that was clear evidence since white Christians were the only groups. So white evangelicals, white Catholics, and white uh, mainline Christians. The only groups that voted majority Trump. Uh, that was evidence that whatever issues white folks, white Christians care about comes before brothers and sisters of color, fellow Christians. That that's always gonna be secondary. So it was like, a, not a slap in the face, it was like an ultimate rejection. That's how they ex kept expressing it to us. Like, we, we, got, we, we, we were slapped down. We were told, you get back at the end of the line. We have more important issues to deal with, our own issues. And, and that's, that was a breaking point for many, where they're just like, I'm done with it, I can't do it. There was a movement actually of African-Americans in particular leaving multi-racial, multi-ethnic churches and going back to black churches. So, and now a couple of years later, here we are in this racial, racial tumult that we are in all summer and into the fall here. I think there are many who are asking sort of, uh, you suggested um, maybe a movement um, uh, changing your, your setting to see more clearly what, um, how then do we, is there, what does sort of the, the little person, me, what do I do? What does it look like? Um, I think there are so many people looking for some uh, ideas of, of a practical, how do I, how do I engage in this? Because I, I, I believe uh, that the Lord wants us to move towards this. So um, any, yeah, any um, practical thoughts there? One, start living a multiracial life. And even that means major upheaval, find a way to make it happen. Start asking God to make it happen. 
I always use this example, but if you wanted to be led into a, a battle by a general, you hope that general has actually been in battle before. And if a general is saying, uh, a younger person in the military says, I want to be a general, what does it take? You actually got to be in the battle and get experience to become a general. That's what it is for us as Christians. We actually got to be in the battle. And that in our country is multiracial, multi-economic, living that way. So find a way to find a church, if you don't already have one, that about this. I usually advocate strongly for multi-racial, multi-ethnic churches because you do have the opportunity to meet, to hear, to learn. But as I've talked about before, you can have them where it's, you're not looking for ones that are just saying it's about diversity and they don't want to really talk about the issues. You have to talk about the issues. That is a major launching point where you can find fellow advocates, where you can work together. One person, yeah, we can't, we can't, I know in our country we like to say one person can change the world. It doesn't usually work that way. You change the world through organizations usually and your involvement. So you got to find the right organizations and church is a key one, the key one as Christians. Well, we are running short on time and there's a, many, many things. I, I know, for instance, I, we didn't mention this necessarily, but uh, Jamar Tisby's book, uh, Color of Compromise, actually integrates a lot of the work you've done. So from a historical perspective, um, you, can, you can sort of interact with that uh, through that book. And then also Dr., uh, Pastor David Swanson wrote a book recently called Rediscipling the White Church, where he gets into some of those same questions. I would recommend both of those um, because they, they both draw from some of the conclusions that you've uh, been talking about and they kind of elaborate from some different perspectives. Uh, because we're short, uh, we're running out of time at this point, uh, I wanna just give you this final question. So I, I am often struck by this picture we have in Revelation of Jesus walking among churches, uh, sort of geographical churches, and he, he gives his critique he gives his commendation, he offers warnings, and he says, really, your, your witness in the world is at stake as a lampstand that represents me. And not to say that you know, you know the inside track necessarily on Jesus, but as you look at the American church um, and you think this is what Jesus is inviting us into, this is what he's telling us in this moment, how would you... How would, what would you think he might be saying to us uh, and inviting us into? Yeah, I think Jesus is inviting us into the life of the kingdom, meaning uh, the kingdom on earth. Yeah, the Bible talks so much about the kingdom. It's inviting us to be part of that development of the actual kingdom on earth. Um, you may have heard this analogy before, but for years, as they tried to break the sound barrier with uh, airplanes, uh, as you approach the sound barrier, the planes would shake violently. And so the pilots kept pulling back. They didn't want the plane to break apart. A man named Chuck Yeager, either a fool or really brave, we don't know which, uh, as he approached that, um, he decided he wasn't going to pull back. If it blows up, it blows up. And he punctured through the sound barrier. And what he found on the other side is once you get through that, that violent shaking in which it looks like it's over, there was serenity. It was uh, a smoothness and a quietness you can't experience on the other side of the sound barrier. I think we're in that right now. We keep pulling and we're, we're shaking violently. And so our instinct as a people is to pull back this is just too much. I mean, 2020, we're all going to feel like we're going to explode. I think God's inviting us. Jesus is inviting us in particular, pushing through. You are going to find something so amazing, something that we as Christians in this country have not gotten to yet, but it's there. Well, Michael, I, I, that's an amazing analogy, and I am really, really grateful for your willingness to sit and to be with us this, uh, this afternoon. Uh, 
I think you said uh, that, you know, you want people to be leading you in battle who have been there themselves and very, very grateful to just have you as someone who has been in this by the call of Jesus and that we could have this opportunity to listen to you uh, as a trustworthy voice. And um, so you guys um, can find a lot of Michael's books uh, online. When is your next book uh, scheduled to be released, Michael? 2021, so it's a little bit of time. Okay. If I could just say, if you all come back the next couple of weeks, the speakers he's got are much better than me. They're amazing. And they'll have powerful things to say. What a great segue. Uh, Melissa, what do you, do you want to uh, share a bit about what's coming in the next couple of weeks? Sure, sure. I'm going to um, share my screen here in a second. And uh, once again, thank you, Dr. Emerson. It was, uh, it was really powerful, a lot to chew on there. I know that there are still a lot of questions. I'm sorry to those of you whose questions we didn't get to ask um, as we were trying to, to curate those. But uh, I do hope that you'll, you'll come back, um, that you'll interact with some of our, our upcoming speakers, um, that you might, uh, I'm putting up again, the, uh, the discount for the uh, Becoming Brave book, as uh, Dr. Brenda Stilta McNeil was mentioned a few times. Um, I think that you might find very helpful um, in, in some of that practical, uh, again, that courage to pursue racial justice is her um, uh, tagline there. But uh, as mentioned, next uh, next week, um, we are looking forward to having Dr. Christina Edmondson with us. She was a former dean at Calvin College. Uh, she's an author, a speaker. She co-hosts a, a fantastic podcast called Truth's Table. Um, I think that you'll find her... Um, really helpful as we talk about anti-racism with her. Uh, she's teaching a course on that coming up. And so uh, I think we'll continue to engage in this conversation. Hope that you will, will join us for that. And once again, thank you so much, Dr. Emerson, for being with us. We are grateful. Uh, thank you to all of you as well. And we hope to see you again next week. So thanks so much. Thank you.